podcast is brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of digital audiobooks. With over 180,000 audiobooks and more to choose from, you're sure to find many you'll enjoy. This week, I recommend The Rise and Fall of Nations by Rushir Sharma, narrated by William Hughes. Uh, the subtitle is Forces of Change in the Post-Crisis World. Uh, you can download it for free at audibletrial.com forward slash threat surface and keep it even if you decide not to keep Audible after your 30-day free trial membership. Okay, uh, this week's guest is Emily Gorsensky, who is a data scientist, uh, a trans woman, and a speaker and activist about many uh, intersections of, of, of Technology, politics, ethics issues, aka perfect for the show. Um, there's really no technical problems, I don't think, in this, uh, in this episode. Unless Kendama Jendale and Sleepy Geeky fuck it up. So guys, you're on, you're on, you're on notice. Let's skip right, right into table topics. Okay. Table topics. I'm looking at the note card that I keep right by my bedside. Table topics. Uh, using machine vision to detect medical conditions from selfies. Okay. This is hilarious. <laughs> because uh, theoretically, uh, anytime you post a selfie online, you're, you're basically inviting really like everybody you know to to like comment on your physical and mental and emotional health so using machine vision to to detect medical conditions from your selfies is basically just taking that one step further and uh it's it's inviting uh computers to do what your friends and colleagues and family have been doing for years um so i welcome my my computer uh, family fam to just jump right in and, and figure out what's going on here. Just I, I'm I'm ready because I definitely need to figure that out. Next up, list of VC red flags. <laughs> okay, so this was like this medium post I read um, that was basically like like you know red flags that like VCs you know like when VCs are meeting with a founder like. These are like red flags that make them immediately like turn down the founder. Um, and on this list of red flags were included stuff like bad breath, because one of the VCs who was interviewed in this list said that he brushes his teeth at least three to four times a day. And so if a, if a founder has bad, bad breath, then that tells him that like this person doesn't pay attention to details so they're definitely not going to like run their company well. Um, so, and I'm like, well, you know, have you ever heard about like bad gut bacteria? <laughs> like, and also like, to me, like, like, Jesus, like what happened to you in childhood? Like, you know, how strict was your German nanny if you're brushing your teeth four times a day? Like, no matter, I, I'm just imagining this, like, just, just the grip holding so tight to that toothbrush, like, leaning over this like pristine Clorox within an inch of its life bathroom at the, at the like, 
you know, billion dollar VC firm and just like if I brush my like brushing your gums till it bleeds, if I just brush hard enough, like I can finally like get the germs out and like it'll all be clean, it'll be clean, it'll be clean. <laughs> and and you know, like you know, he's saying like, oh, you know, detail you have to be detail oriented to be a founder. Meanwhile, like, you know, flash to a picture of Steve Wozniak. <laughs> Do you think he brushed his teeth four four times a day? Maybe four times a year. Come on. Um, these people are such fools. Um, the other thing that was on this list of, um, of VC red flags was, quote, flirty founders. Um, and, and next to this was like, like, this is like an absolute no or something like this. Um, you know, I'm not like disputing the idea that like, you shouldn't be like hitting on somebody that like you're trying to like get to invest in, in your company or whatever. Like, yeah, that's probably a bad idea for any number of reasons. Um, but like, the, the the idea that like, like that this made it onto this list, it, it feels really gendered to me and really sexist. Um, because I'm, I'm just imagining once again, that these like, you know, old white men who were sort of like hunkered down in their bunkers and they're sort of like, oh, cute young girls, like stop hitting on me, you know? And, and the, meanwhile, like, my experience is that, like, for the most part, these guys, like, they're, like, projecting their attraction onto women, onto women. Like, you know, it's not so much that these young women are, like, it's not that there's a problem with them trying to flirt with these old geezers. <laughs> it's, it's that, like, these men are attracted to them and then, like, they are like projecting that attraction onto them and they're sort of like, well, she was flirty. So, you know, that's a no, like that's a red flag. That's a no. And meanwhile, like she's just like being her like normal, like, you know, gender identity expression. Like she's just sort of like just expressing herself as a human and just being like a normal human in this world. And just because like he interprets his own attraction as like, that's flirtiness or something like, you know, that's not her fucking problem, frankly. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I interpret that a little bit differently than I think they probably do. Um, okay, next up. Visiting. Okay, so I went on a date to, uh, to this like LA contemporary art fair. And like one of the things that we did was we went and visited artists in their studios. And, um, so we were just standing and talking to this artist and like the, the art that she made was like super shitty, but like she, she like went on and on and on and on about the art and like, like exactly how she creates the art and like how like she like exactly makes the art and like, you know, like all the details that she goes into, like how she like puts it together and like the materials and this and that. And so like she was going on into, into this like fine grained detail about how she makes the art. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, like, just because you go on and on about how you create your art doesn't make your art good. And I think that this, I think that this is true for stuff in Hollywood. And I think it's true in Silicon Valley, too. I think it's, it's true in, in both sectors that I have a hand in. Because um, people will, will just go on and on about their 
horrible movie or TV show or something, and and just because they talk it to death doesn't make the end product any good. Like just because the the pitch is thirty years long, like it's not good. <laughs> it's just like they just pitched it to death, you know. Or or they might be like a great pitcher, you know. But just because like they pitch the shit out of it doesn't make it actually good. Um, or like in Silicon Valley, like you know, these things get like marketed to death and like somebody will just like go on and on like, you know, like networking and marketing and pitching their dumbass product. But like, and the, at the end of the day, the product is still horrible. And I think it's really important to separate like all the stuff surrounding, like all the storytelling. So quote unquote, you know, by the way, this, this show is, um, is about the intersection of storytelling and technology. That's what I forgot to do. I forgot to say like what, who this show, who I am, and what the show is about. Um, sorry for that. I'm a little bit off my game. Um, anyway, this show is about the intersection of storytelling and technology, and um, I think that I think that Silicon Valley could do with a little less storytelling and uh, a little more technology. Let's put it that way. Um. Okay, next up. Oh, <laughs> LinkedIn. Somebody I met at this at this VR conference was like going on and on about how I should like, like update my LinkedIn profile because she was like, I mean, if you want me to refer engineers to you, then like the first thing I'm going to do is like go home and look you up on LinkedIn. I was sort of like, um, I have agents like... I don't need LinkedIn. <laughs> it's just like, that's insane. Like, screenwriters don't, we don't like put our credits on LinkedIn. I also have IMDB, like, that lists my credits. Like, this is crazy. But she was sort of like, I think you're wrong. Like, I think you need to like put all your work experience on LinkedIn. Um, and the more she talked, the more convinced I became that like the first thing I needed to do was like go home and delete my LinkedIn. <laughs> like, I literally haven't updated it in like eight years. I haven't done it yet because I'm actually quite a busy person. But, um, I will. Um, okay, next up. South by Southwest. I am going to be a featured speaker at my first time at South by Southwest. Very exciting. I'm literally flying in and out for less than 24 hours because I don't know what else I would do at South by Southwest besides, like, I just, I don't know what I would do there. Um, however, when they, when, when they put out the announcement that, um, you know, that I was a part of, they called me an entertainment influencer. If, you know, it, the, the way that you build a career in Hollywood is by your, is by proving again and again that you can withstand, not only withstand, but like really learn to love sustained humiliations again and again and again. Just really just learning to just take it. Just take those humiliations and just learn to love them. Um, so I really, I felt like getting billed, like, in a public announcement as an entertainment influencer, uh, it was basically like saying, you made it, kid. <laughs> like, I'm, we're just gonna humiliate the shit out of you in public. You made it. Um, next up. Google's AI has learned to become highly aggressive in stressful situations. So, if... You know, if, if 
if you know there's some people who think that like we're like 50 years away from artificial general intelligence which is basically like human level intelligence you know machine achieving human level intelligence um but if google's ai has learned to become highly aggressive in stressful situations i'd say there's a fair bet that like we're gonna achieve it like this year <laughs> like, i mean that's about as human as it gets like what other what other characteristics are defining for humanity than than like freaking the fuck out and like and like like apparently this ai like plays a lot of board games with uh, with its like ai friends and like basically what they're saying is that it it like flips the board and like all the pieces fly in the air like whenever the ai doesn't get its way so um can't think of anything that's more human than that um so everybody knows about the about the woman engineer who wrote the blog post that went viral um i have a lot of thoughts about this one thought i have is that i, th I think that most women who have worked in a male-dominated industry for more than five years are going to have a story that's you know it maybe not as bad as her story but like similar um under their belt that's one thought. Um, not to at all diminish, you know, what, what she reported. But um, second of all, it's hilarious that, uh, you know, Travis Kalanick, the CEO at Uber, he's all like, oh, we're going to fully investigate this and, you know, fully get to the bottom of this. And he, he said all this bullshit about like, oh, we want justice at Uber and blah, blah, blah. And meanwhile, like, they didn't notice that 90% of their women engineers had quit. Like, how, how did that just, like, you know, how did no one notice that? Like, that's huge. Like, th th there's just so much about that company that uh, it just it just defies belief. It's, um, I don't know, it, it, it's almost like something that, that, I almost like can't make a joke about it because it's uh, so astonishing. Um, but and like everybody surrounding him, aka like his investors and you know all of his sort of like apologists, uh, they're basically just like waiting for their payday. So they're sort of you know they're they're like his like cover up crew. You know? And um, so like so now he's he's hired like. Eric Holder uh, and like professional woman Ariana Huffington to like investigate these claims and you know like so like they couldn't have investigated when she went to HR like literally a hundred times like it took a blog post to investigate um the whole thing really defies belief um there was a hilarious story about 4chan on on medium uh you know, some people said like, oh, you know, the rise of 4chan wasn't exactly like that and blah, blah, blah. And um, one thing that I, I found particularly amusing in it was uh, it, it it talked about how um, Anonymous was like never as like serious politically or as like organized as, uh, as, as sort of the scared bourgeois uh, wanted to believe or the, you know, or the media at, at the time. And it talked about how it essentially was just like, like literally message board dwellers, like most, mostly who actually did live in their parents' basements. 
Um, and they were called anonymous because, you know, so they didn't have to log into the site. They just came up as anonymous and, um, and how they kind of mostly congregated around like issues of free speech because they didn't want their speech, uh, uh, abridged because they wanted to keep posting their lols and their memes. And, um, and it, and it actually made the point in the article that this is why, like, you know, this, like, cartoonish show like Mr. Robot is so hilarious because it's, like, taking Anonymous seriously as a movement, um, and then, like, like, they, they were, like, taking all of their, like, sort of language from, like, movies and TV, you know, and kind of copying that, and then Mr. Robot, like, just then, like, closed the vicious circle by, like, making a fake car like superhero cartoon like tv show about them as if they were a serious movement when they never were a serious movie they, they were just copying the like fantasy like tv and you know and movies that it, and so it's like there's no there there it's just like, it's like, um you guys know how i feel about mr robot we can move on so finally i want to talk about uh this amazing article i read on um Ben Thompson, this guy Ben Thompson, this amazing analyst, wrote this article on his site called Stratechery uh, about Facebook and politics called um, something like Manifestos and Monopolies. Uh, I'll link it in the show, show notes. And he basically was talking about the ways in which, uh, like, Facebook has such, um, has carved out such intense network effects that if uh, Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg does intend to run for president, which is debatable whether he is or not, but if he is, um, it might be that that Facebook's uh, moat is so powerful that there's basically nothing we can do to stop him. That that you know, it's it, it his his virtuous circle is so self reinforcing that um, he's got the political speech. Uh, basically so locked down that he controls kind of all political speech in this nation, you know, for more or less. And, um, it's basically, it's his, it's basically his if he wants it. And then once he's in office, then he can basically make decisions to continue, uh, you know, making decisions and doing things to help his company because um, we see now with Trump that like no one really cares if if our presidency is hollowed out into a kleptocracy, and so the lock-in, you know, the the Facebook lock-in can sort of continue squeezing tighter and tighter, so the network effects get bigger and bigger and bigger, and the bigger the network effects get, meaning that there's no competition, that like there's there's no other competing social network or competing platforms that can also serve, you know, publishers to an audience, um, that that'll be all screwed out. And then we'll, we'll live in the Republic of Facebook and, um, that's, that'll be the next chapter of this land that we live in. Um, so welcome to the Republic, Republic of Facebook, I guess. Long live Facebook. Okay, let's talk to Emily.
Hi, Emily. Hi there. How are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you? Good, good. Would you, can you pull your, or are you on a desktop? There you go, perfect. There we go. Is that better? Yeah, that's perfect. I just wanted to frame you a little bit. Yeah, sure thing. And next, can you tell me how to pronounce your last name? Sure thing. It's Gorsensky. Gorsensky. Okay, great. Um, So let's get started. Sure. So I am here with Emily Gorsensky. You are a data data scientist. Uh, You speak about ethics and technology. You speak also about trans issues. And um, you're sort of on the front lines of a lot of different uh, intersections that are very uh, important to all of us right now, which is why I wanted to have you on my show. And I'm realizing that I'm not hearing. Take these earbuds out, if you don't mind. Can you hear me? Uh, Yeah, you just got a little bit quieter, but can you hear me all right? Yeah, I can hear you perfectly. Awesome. Okay, and tell me if there's like feedback that gets annoying and then I'll put the the earbuds back in. Um, Okay, so just to give, to illustrate who you are to our audience, uh, in your Twitter bio, you say, I have never used inferred behaviors to deliver a list of users to a government. Uh, And I feel like that... That alone, which is why you you put it in your bio, that speaks to so much of what you talk about. Um, why don't before I mangle what I you know what the meaning of that is? Why don't you explain what the meaning of that is? Sure thing. Yeah, there's um, you know we live in an interesting time right now where lots of technology, machine learning technology, and uh, sort of big data is. Um, growing at a pace faster than we have um, people really trained to check it, control it, and evaluate it. Um, And there's somewhat of a concern that using this capability um, that companies will be asked to deliver information to governments, um, there's, you know, lots of concern with lots of uh, social networking communities about whether they have to turn over information um, for special warrants and and things like that. Um, But what's really concerning is just the ability for machine learning technology to project behaviors onto individuals. Uh, The best example I have of this right now is that there are companies out there that sell uh, software that that attempts to predict um, recidivism rates and um, it uses math and, and data and science to try to determine whether somebody should stay in jail or, or what their prison sentence should be. Um, so my, my uh, canary in my bio, it's not the strongest vehicle in the world to communicate that, but um, I am a data scientist. I do work in the finance industry, and you know, I want people to know that I'm not out there looking at purchasing behaviors or financial transactions and um, using that to assume that they're members of some party or some class and that I'm not uh, being asked to give that to interested parties that, they, that might not want to have that information. So, so one of the most striking uh subjects that I've seen you write about is the ways in which um, data scientists and you know other people who work on algorithms, um, a lot of times where ethics come in is is not when they're 
you know, expressly being asked to, to draw up plans for, say, a Muslim ban or something like that. But when suddenly um, the, the algorithm that they're creating starts to have um, unknown consequences, um, when, like, when, when, the, when what they've designed, you know, starts to act in ways that they could have never, uh, you know, intended to start with. And then, and then the ethics come in when, when that starts to happen, like, you know, are, do you, are you responsible for pulling the plug, even like, if that's not your job, or if like, you're working under supervisors? Um, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. There's sorts of lots of unintended consequences that are hard to um, predict, that can be hard to predict um, for how these algorithms get used and implemented. Um, the, the big thing for me is, you know, not to try to predict every possible um, ethical breach, but to at least make an effort to measure the potential for doing harm. Um, and so I think that, you know, there's, there, I, there's lots of great case studies out there um, on how big data and algorithms have been designed for one thing and then uh, sort of in the edge case, it's, it's always in, in sort of the edge cases where people get hurt. Um, Karina Zona is a, another technologist. She gives this great example um, from a few years ago in one of her talks that uh, Target designed a machine learning algorithm to try to figure out if uh, users are pregnant mm -hmm. or shoppers are pregnant um, to try to market to them earlier in their pregnancy. Um, pregnant women are a huge uh, conversion in retail. If you can convert a pregnant woman, you basically get a customer for life type of thing. Um, so they wanted to see if they could do it earlier than um, their competitors. And they looked at their data and they said, sure, we can do this. Um, and it was, it actually worked pretty well for them. Um, the problem is it worked too well and they didn't really think through what the impact of that could be until um, like a 16 or so year old girl got a mailing from Target, you know, congratulations on your, your baby, here are some supplies, you know, you'll want diapers and you'll want this. And um, her dad saw the, the advert and went to the store and was furious and yelled at the manager. Of course, the manager doesn't have anything to do with this, but yelled at the manager, um, probably because it felt good. And um, manager apologized profusely. The father came back the next day and said, I'm so sorry for yelling at you. It appears that there are things that are happening in my house that I don't know about. My daughter is pregnant. And in, in applying this algorithm without thinking through the consequences of what technology like that could do, this company, this corporation, removed this poor girl's autonomy of her deciding when she gets to tell her parents, what she gets to tell her parents, what she's going to do. Um, and those are really, you know, those, that's not the... In, built into the use case. Nobody specced it out saying, oh, we're going to out pregnant teens to their parents. Um, but that's the actual results that can happen from things like that. So then to take it one step further, um, you know, in, in something that you particularly specialize in, it, it you know, something like a Facebook could start um, outing uh, somebody who is trans who hasn't come out to their community or hasn't, you know, hasn't, I don't know, who, who, who isn't public or I mean that's actually a quite quite a dangerous situation it, it's it's very very dangerous um, there are 
lots of ways that Facebook has outed people, um, that these algorithms have outed people through innocent things like, um, you know, the year in review videos that they do at the end of the year or um, suggestions of who friends might be, that sort of thing. Um, particularly in the trans community, lots of people start a second profile before they transition. Um, and, you know, it's sort of their, they maintain their old profile because they haven't come out to all their friends, all their family. They're nervous about it. They're worried about how they're going to say it. Um, but they, you know, you don't just all of a sudden come out and then build your community. Typically, you build your community before you come out, and that's where you find your strength and your support. And, you know, I have uh, several friends that have started their second account. Um, and if you're not careful, Facebook can put that second account right up in the recommended friends um, of people that you know that you're not ready to be out with. Well, and then that brings us to uh, the next thing that I want to talk about, which is facial recognition. That um, social, I mean, facial recognition is sort of like the net, the next big thing in, in all of these topics. But the social networks are sort of, you know, some of the biggest um, uh, perpetrators of, of facial recognition crime. You know, in that like every photo that I tag in Facebook or that somebody else tags me in is basically like adding to their database of, of you know, of, of my facial rec you know recognition machine learning database essentially and yeah. um so say for a trans person if they have two profiles and one is of their you know their former identity and one is of their new identity but they both have similar facial characteristics suddenly you know there's this huge data point you know interaction that maybe yeah. they didn't want to have on public uh databases but then, like, in, say, a Trump administration, they can start, uh, you know, subpoenaing rec records from in one or two years or even six months from now. Um, it's a horrifying um, just violation of civil rights. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Facial recognition in particular is, is really interesting because there are so many biases in how those algorithms are written, how they're developed. Um, you know, there are... Some of those algorithms have um, flags for, for gender determination um, that would fail for many trans people. Um, and like, like you said, the biometric, the sort of involuntary biometric marker creates a link between profiles that, um, that you, you don't, it's not willing, but it, it like you said, it, it creates that connection between profiles. Um, and what's really interesting is, especially in the current administration, um, people going to protests and, um, you know, especially in the trans community, the, the LGBT community is, is, um, has a long history of activism, uh, a long history of activism that is, um, not necessarily, uh, I don't want to say that it's violent because I don't believe that it is, but it's not, you know, holding hands and singing Kumbaya. It's, it yeah. is, um, angry and it's loud and people get arrested and thrown in jail and it can be messy. Um, and so, you know, people go to these protests, they put pictures up on uh, Facebook and, you know, so that's something that targets the LGBT community by virtue of its higher participation in protest actions, things like that. And so recently I've been hearing a lot about um, the ways in which like, like people have been saying, oh, we could have seen Trump coming if we had sort of studied the rise of, like, celebrity culture and, you know, 
and, and, and TV kind of becoming our dominant mode of, of like understanding our world. And like, we could have, we could have understood this rise, like sort of seen the seeds get planted faster if we had sort of understood that. I, you know, that's debatable, obviously, but I, I almost feel like now that same thing is happening with the rise of, of the dominance of tech, like sort of for the next four years that, you know, tech is, is kind of becoming, you know, this all or nothing thing that tech is dominating all of our society, both politically, culturally, you know, in, in, in all forms. And, um, and I, I think that right now in the same way that people sort of didn't see the rise of Trumpism happening, they're sort of missing the rise of, um, well, not everybody, but a lot of people sort of, you know, my parents say, or, um, you know, like, like everybody's hearing the noise about like, oh, is Zuckerberg going to run for president or is he not? And, um, you know, if, if Zuckerberg were to rise for president, it would be, you know, arguably the most powerful company on earth, you know, the CEO of the most powerful company on earth, then being the president of the most powerful co- nation on earth, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's this like convergence of, of power into concentrated into one person. And yeah, it's, and it's, what's fascinating about it is that, you know, there's sort of a confluence of events that's happening in that this election was very obviously influenced by things like Facebook and the way that news is delivered and to whom it's delivered. Um, you know, Facebook admits that they can affect voter turnout. They admit that they, they've done studies. They've done um, very questionably ethically unsound studies on um, whether they can manipulate people's emotions by how they present their timeline. And so, of course, Facebook had an influence on the election. Um, and now you have what is maybe the most powerful uh, influential force in American politics, their CEO or their founder, I don't know what his actual technical role is or will be, but if he runs for president, now he has that entire apparatus at his disposal, um, which is a problem in and of itself. But we've already seen in the first month and a, month and a day of the Trump administration that there is um, almost no interest in holding the president to any ethical standards. Um, so there's really nothing to suggest that if Zuckerberg were to run, that he would be uh, checked on abusing the power of his network to influence the election at all. At all. Um, so it's a very fascinating uh, thing to watch, and I hope that we can implement controls uh, before that happens. But it, you know, it's kind of terrifying to see what's going on. I mean, I don't even know if it's possible. I, I almost think that that Facebook Facebook has sort of established such a dominant network effect, that and, and their lock in is so powerful that I almost feel like I almost feel, I almost think the only thing that would 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 keep it from happening is that young people don't like Facebook anymore. <laughs> like I think I think that's the only thing that, that's like you know, that, that will keep, like, this sort of all-powerful network effect from kind of, like, you know, keeping this virtuous cycle from, like, tightening and tightening and tightening and, like, putting Zuckerberg into office. I don't think there's anything yeah. else. It, it's, it's interesting um, because Facebook's demographics have shifted older um, over the past few years. And, 
you know, it's it's kind of funny to see like there are some of those memes going around like, you know, twenty years ago your parents say, Oh, don't trust anybody on the internet and now they're like you know, they send you emails and they're like, Look at the story I read and it's like, Oh jeez, like where did you find it? Did you find that on Facebook? Like, can you stop believing what people on the internet say? Um, but yeah, so you know, I think it's interesting because the whole tech industry is very um, interested in the power that this can that they can leverage um, from this from their own specific demographics. And you know, we saw it with um, if you look at the rise of the alt right, um, you know, there's young white men majority voted for Trump, uh, and the online spaces that they're most active in are things like Reddit and 4chan and, you know, other uh, social networking sites. Um, African-American people, particularly African-American women, it, it's Twitter is, is the core demographic yeah. there. And so the, it's really like there's not one monolithic social network. They all kind of cater to certain demographics. Facebook is maybe the most influential at the moment. But, yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see how, um, you know, it's it'll almost be like a, a a cold war of algorithmic technology if if these companies decide to get into that game. And so, so when you say a cold war of algorithmic technologies, does that mean that like, uh, you know, say like each social network and each like you know a Google and a Facebook will sort of hire people like you? to kind of like come up with like an even more powerful algorithm to kind of mine people like me that, you know, your Cambridge Analytica's and, you know, to kind of like get even more and more microscopic into like my wants and fears and hopes and dreams. Is, is that what you describe what you're striving? Yeah, I, I think, I think so. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see. I think, you know, kind of the first, I don't know if, it, if calling it the first generation is the right way of saying it, but sort of the first pass of, of you know, these algorithmic recommendation engines, um, they're, they're pretty good. Like they're, they're pretty accurate at providing the content that you want to see based on what you've read and seen before. Yeah. Um, they, there's a lot of improvement that can be made on them. But I think on that front, like you get to the law of, of diminishing returns. And so you need more and more, um, resources to get smaller and smaller benefit out of it, but that um, that sort of marginal benefit is you know the win or lose um, at some point. Um, you know it'll it'll be pretty easy. I mean, it's so cheap to spin up um, computation clusters, and you can uh, go and you can throw a TensorFlow at things, and you don't even have to know how it works really. You just import the API and and write some boilerplate code and um, you need to know some basics, but you can, you know, you can spin up some pretty good machine learning software pretty easily. Um, the difference is going to be, you know, where do you get that extra 5% from um, that really shifts it? Um, and as, you know, as we saw, like, with um, Wisconsin and Michigan, it's not a huge, like, you don't need to shift a huge number of people to win an election. I was going to say, isn't that extra 5% always the way? I mean, even like yep. in what I do with writing movies, you know, that extra 5% can be the difference between a good movie and a bad movie. <laughs> you know, so. Um, so you have said that, that trans folks are the, are on, are the front lines right now. Um, and, and for instance, like the idea, like, like when people say that, that identity, quote, identity politics lost Hillary 
the election, um, you would disagree with, with that notion, um, which I would too. Um, but, but talk to me about, about the, about how trans people are, are the front lines right now, which actually I would agree with as, as well. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, we saw, you know, all of the stuff that people are getting worried about now with the, um, overreach of, of government into, um, marginalized people's lives to control, um, their access to resources, um, this is not something that has started with the Trump administration. It's not something that started in the past month. Um, we can look back to HB2, which passed North Carolina, which was is their bathroom bill. And, you know, it gets media coverage as an anti-LGBT bill because it does undo some general anti-LGBT or does undo some LGBT protections. Um, but it's really, it's really an anti-trans bill. The big thing about it was that um, it denies bathroom rights, um, to trans people to use the bathroom of their correct gender in, in public facilities. Um, and that was last year. And last year there were a hundred I want to say 127, um, anti LGBT bills at the state level. There were, there were at least nine States this year, including my own state of Virginia, um, that at least introduced and debated, um, and, you know, bathroom bills. Um, and I believe that some of them are still, you know, possibly pending. Um, so the, you know, this fight isn't, isn't really new. Uh, the, the ACA, um, obviously that's a huge deal for a lot of people. Um, trans people already lost their ACA benefits. Um, all the stuff that people are saying about like, Oh, if I lose my health care, um, if the ACA gets repealed, this is going to happen. That's already happened to trans people. Um, when a judge, federal judge, put an injunction on uh, the Section 1557 interpretation, which would have ensured that trans people actually get coverage um, per law, you know, as as the law dictates. Um, so we've been seeing this, we've been fighting this um, same battle for years, um, and so yeah, we everything that's happening is something that's already happened to the trans community. And it's already stuff that we've been fighting out and speaking out against. So it, is, is it disappointing for you to hear that, like, like, I even hear people on the left saying these things like, you know, oh, this focus on identity politics was what lost Hillary the election. And that's personally disappointing for me because it's, it's almost, especially from the left, because it's almost as if to imply that, like, oh, we've been, you know, we've been coddling, you know, you whiners for too long who are complaining about your rights and your civil rights and, it's like, wait, you're on the left, supposedly? <laughs> I just don't understand that point of view. Yeah, it's, it's super frustrating. Um, it's actually infuriating to see that um, because it's it's really like somebody walking up to you and saying, we got ours, thanks a bunch, you can wait for yours. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, a lot of the, um, the during the gay marriage fight, that was, that was a pretty big thing. Obviously, I'm a supporter of, of same-sex marriage. Um, the Obergefell ruling made it so that I could stay married to my wife um, when I transitioned. Um, so it's, it's great. Um, the frustration there was that um, by focusing on marriage and not uh, sort of universal protections, um, that all of that support from the wealthy white cis gay crowd 
would kind of evaporate. And that's exactly what we saw. Like, they didn't show up to fight for fight against HB2. They didn't show up to fight, um, you know, against all of the bathroom bills that are going on all over the country. You don't see them showing up um, when anti-trans violence happens. Um, and so it's, it's kind of really frustrating to, like, be blamed um, for losing Hillary the election because we have the temerity to ask for equal access to healthcare because we ask to have our pronouns respected and, our, and access to the right bathrooms. It's, it's nonsense. It, it's really um, letting the bigots dictate the rules of the game. It's appalling, frankly, um, whether it's coming from left or right. It's, it's, it's kind of horrifying. Um, I also think there's something culturally and narratively uh, about the idea that, that trans folks are on the front lines. And I almost feel like um, to be trans is sort of uh, definitively like the, the identity of today and not to diminish at all the suffering, you know, that's being experienced. But it feels like, um, you know, we are all trans in some way. <laughs> That, that's sort of what it feels like culturally. Um, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but you've written extensively about like the trans protections um, and fights that are at risk with the Trump administration. But I know you don't have like a list like right in front of you or anything. But do you, do you have, have any off the top of your head that you want to talk about? Um, sure. I, I pretty much have that list memorized. Um, kind of live and breathe it. I, we can talk about um, any part of it. Uh, the big news today would have been the Title IX um, ruling, not sort not ruling, but I guess um, the revocation of the uh, instructions from the Department of Education to schools um, that would dictate that trans students should be able to use bathrooms of their choosing. Um, it's kind of a symbolic gesture because a federal judge did um, put a hold on that pending the uh, the case that is going to the Supreme Court, um, GG versus Gloucester. Um, but it, it's still one of those things like, you know, you, when you look, when you line up all of the, <clears throat> all the federal protections that we have, um, and all of the federal protections that we need, it's been a month and a day and we've already seen two of them go away. And then today was title nine. Um, there's a lot of fear over losing, um, Executive Order 13672, which protects federal employees and, and federal contractors. Um, there's a lot of fear over losing Title VII rights, um, which would mean that we that we have equal access to uh, workplace benefits. Um, and then Title IX uh, education access is, um, yeah, it's it's a horrible thing. It's it it affects me personally because I I do take classes. I do. Um, uh, am working on a graduate degree slowly, um, but it's that really affects trans kids um, who are some of the most vulnerable people and bravest people that I know. Um, to be able to come out and say, I'm trans, this is my name, these are my pronouns, and I want to use the right bathroom is, is so difficult, um, and the federal government is bullying these kids for no apparent reason. It's horrifying. I mean, I, I, I frankly just don't even know what to say. Like, is, is there any way uh, to, to support or help? The best thing, you know, the, the way that I see this needing to be done is that the fights have to go to the state and local levels. Um, 
at at the state level, state level protections. You know, if it's going to if the administration is going to delegate it to a states' rights issue, then that's where we need to take the fight while keeping the pressure on um, on the, the federal government. Um, but you know that that's really the best thing that I see that an individual can do is make sure that uh, state representatives know that it's important, encourage them to pass legislation that um, protects trans people at all levels, um, and then. You know, local school boards and city councils can uh, add human rights ordinances and ensure that students have access to facilities that all people have um, access to to the proper services within their communities. Um, and you know, that's that's something that needs to be done regardless of the federal protections. Right. So. I mean, that's one thing that the conservatives are always talking about states' rights. You know, and and. Surely, this would be a a, a, state, a state's rights issue that to, to let let uh, these protections happen at the at the state and local level. Well, it's you know it's unfortunate that that it's become that because Title IX is a federal law, Title VII is a federal law, um, and the courts have have broadly interpreted, you know, rightly in my opinion that language about sex discrimination should apply to trans people. There's nothing special about trans people that um, should exempt them from sex discrimination. Um, the intent of that language when it was written in the in the vernacular of the 1960s and 1970s was that uh, differences in um, what we would now call gender um, should not be a basis for discrimination, period. Um, regardless of whether that person is, was, is the same gender that they were assigned at birth or not. Um, and so that those protections should hopefully be interpreted to, to mean that. Um, but the first case to go before the Supreme Court is, is happening very, very soon. And uh, it's going to a, an eight judge or an eight justice court. And um, yeah, it's a very it's a very stressful, tentative time. Do you happen that. to know the name of that case so we can follow it? Sure, it's um, GG versus Gloucester. Okay. Um, it's Gloucester is uh, I want to say it's in it's in Virginia. I want to say it's County um, High School in Virginia. Mm -hmm. uh, a trans uh, boy has sued to uh, have access to the proper facilities um, that the school board has has fought it. They've lost an appeal at the Fourth Circuit Court, which covers Virginia um, and North Carolina or at least parts of North Carolina. Um, and so the ruling as it stands, the, the, the Fourth Circuit of, uh, Court ruled that, the, um, that Gigi um, should have access to the bathroom. Another judge has, has put a sort of stay on that um, pending the Supreme Court um, decision. And so you know, that hearing is coming up. Uh, and, you know, the ruling will follow when it follows. And, um, you know, if we're hoping that Justice Kennedy um, properly, again, interprets his place in history, as he did with the Obergefell decision. Um, and, yeah, it would be a huge win for trans rights. Even if it was a deadlocked um, Supreme Court, um, it wouldn't set a, a nationwide precedent but at least um, 
Gavin would have access to the facilities. The Fourth Circuit, would, the ruling would probably uh, apply to the Fourth Circuit, which would be a start, but we really do want to see that be nationwide. There really shouldn't be um, your success or failure in life as a trans person shouldn't depend on the zip code you're born in. Of course. Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, and I'm just thinking about this child. Like, can you imagine, go, you know, fighting all the way to the Supreme Court for your right to go to the bathroom in your school? It's it's horrifying, but also so brave of this person to be taking this fight all the way to the Supreme Court. I mean, talk about courage. Yeah. Really just Absolutely. chills down my spine. Um, forgive me if this question is too personal, and if so, then just, just say so, but... Um, you used to be a libertarian tech bro, as as you described. <laughs> and you said if it weren't for my wife, my community, and a desire to survive, you might still be one. Do you want to talk about that or no? Yeah, sure, sure. You know, it's um, you know, I grew up in a conservative household um, and grew up. You know, went to I went to an engineering school that was. Um, mostly men and you know we all worked hard and that sort of uh, the politic of oh work hard and you get what you want is um you know kind of central to the libertarian viewpoint and it was something that i think that we all felt that we lived um because you know it's not easy to go through engineering school um it, it does require a lot of sacrifice it does require a lot of um stress and um you know, I'm, I'm proud of what I did. I'm proud to have succeeded. And that kind of framed my, my politics for a long time. Um, and it was, it kind of reinforced it because I didn't have really the easiest path to get through college. I was um, very sick at one point. I took three years off. Um, so it took me a very long time to finish my degree. But I went back, I finished. Um, and so that kind of reinforced like, oh, yeah, I just got to, you know, everyone just has to work hard. Yeah. Um, and I met my wife, and she she kind of looked at me and was like, "Okay, this person's cute, but um, we'll work on those politics." <laughs> and um, I don't know. And over time, you know, she didn't press me for it or anything like that. She just let me discover on my own um, by by watching as I moved closer and closer to transition and um, became closer and closer to. Um, people that weren't like me and really understanding their struggles and how hard that they worked at what they're doing and how they're not getting the rewards for their hard work. Um, and so that, that all kind of, kind of changed. And when I decided to transition, um, fully, you know, I've been living gender nonconforming for a very long time, um, and decided the transition was the right thing to do. Uh, and I, you know, found a, a trans community and made you know made myself part of that community and, and began to understand to see what everyone was going through and to read their takes and and um, having seeing them listen to them tell their stories and seeing them so similar to mine gave me a lot of trust in the words that they were saying and so when they were talking about politics, about um, issues in the world, about equality, about social justice, I was very inclined to say, to, to believe them. I didn't think they were lying 
you know, when saying one thing and, and telling the truth when saying another. And I started realizing, oh, okay, no, this is this is really the 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 crux of it. Like this is what it means to be trans. This is what it means to be to be you know a black person or to be disabled. Um, and these stories are so familiar um, to my own story um, transitioning that it's like, okay, this is this makes sense. Um, and so yeah, over it kind of was like a gradual shift and then a, a pretty rapid descent into full on. Social justice warrior, I guess they would call me. But <laughs> it happened slow than fast. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Um, yeah, it was really since the election um, that that really took off. I was already pretty politically active and outspoken before that, but I mean, since the election, it's just all gone off. You've been on fire, but I, I particularly wanted to ask you about this comment because you have this unique perspective of you know. Now you're a woman, but you have been not only, you know, you had been uh, identified or you assigned a, a different identity that I, I think I'm just asking you, like, what are they like? <laughs> I think that's what I'm asking you. You know, it's... Tell me inside that mindset, not, and not just the male mindset, but the libertarian tech bro, like, tell me, like, how do they think? It's, yeah, it's hard to explain. Um, I guess the one thing that I would, I would say that I haven't really changed on is, um, and I want to be careful about how I say this, is that we need to figure out how to talk about masculinity in healthy ways. Mm. We need uh, to recognize gendered issues um for men and how they affect men and the structural constraints that patriarchy puts on men, not just women. Um, it was, you know, I was very lonely uh, when I was still identified as a male. Um, I didn't understand relationships. I didn't understand relationship dynamics because I was viewing them through this lens of this is how it's supposed to be. This is how, um, this is how, this gendered relationship is supposed to, to go. Um, this is how men get treated by women. This is how women treat other women. This is, you know, these are all these dynamics that I kind of, you know, thought that I understood, but it was all from a very um, specific power oriented um, mindset. And it can be very um, difficult when, you don't have a lot of self-esteem when you feel lonely, when you don't feel um, like you're an exceptional person, but you're you're being told that you have to be an exceptional person all the time. Um, to to really, it, it's hard to kind of uh, find empathy for other people when you don't have a lot for yourself. Yes. Um, so that that was that was my experience. I don't know that that's everybody's experience, but I do see a lot of that in what I read in um, some of these comments and some of these communities. And and you know, every once in a while, I read the comments on on news stories and stuff like that. And it's I see a lot of projection. I see a lot of self hate. Um, I see a lot of um, blaming other people for the station that they're in, in life. Um, 
And I think that the, that libertarian politic is a way that some men see a, a, a way that restrictions would be lifted so that they could do those things. Like, I feel like they think that they can't succeed because they're being regulated either literally or, or um, figuratively. Um, and that's the barrier to their success. That is fascinating. Sort of by all these like, you know, marginalized identity politic groups who are sort of getting all the like favors and all the hands up, you know, in this kind of imaginary fantasy world, you know, cause, cause they are whining all the time about their victimhood status. And so they're getting all these like favors. And meanwhile, the really uh, victim victimized group are the white men supposedly or something like that. Right. Is that right? <laughs> I mean, I yeah. obviously don't subscribe to that notion at all. But I, I think I think that's kind of a lot of the mindset. Um, I think it has to do with what the value proposition is. Um, you know, they have easy access to jobs, capital, stuff like that. They have um, they don't necessarily see their privilege, so they don't see that that's a benefit of their station. Um, what they want is that they want to be loved. They want companionship. They want to feel powerful. They want to feel capable and respected, and they see, um, you know, the, the the trope is, oh, women control sex, um, men want sex, women control sex, and so they see it as like, oh, they're getting a benefit. But then they also see like, oh, well, so, you know, you're a black woman now, you're asking for a handout, or now you're asking for like special treatment, like I don't get special treatment, um, and so they see like, oh, so you're getting special treatment and you're getting like the power in this dynamic that I want to have power in, um, yeah. this feels like, you know, this feels like bullshit. Um, obviously that's not the case because it, there's, there's so many other social dynamics. And now that, you know, I, I've sort of lived through this experience, I'm like, Oh my God, this is like the wrongest way to look at things. Um, but I, I, you know, emotionally I do, I, I do still understand why they feel like that. And it's it's frustrating to see that that's it's so lopsided. It, it strikes me that you you connect like having grown up with the idea of um, well, if you work hard, you'll get whatever you want. With with then um, like you started to unpack that idea as you started uh, gender nonconforming, that like you started to witness and experience. Uh, like people working really hard and not necessarily get, you know, like that those two ideas sort of started to like disconnect from each other. That, that seems to me like, like if I were writing your life, like dr dramatic, if I was dramatic, dramatizing your life, like I would, I would really kind of like dig into that point right there. That seems significant to me. Um, I also wanted to ask you about, uh, the idea that you said that you left your job as a defense contractor because you didn't want to make weapons. That seems significant to me as well. Yeah. Um, that, that was kind of a long time coming. I'd worked there for a, a while. Um, eight years I spent there. Um, you know, we were a research and development firm and, you know, I didn't. I wasn't like the person that designed the missile or designed the gun or anything like that. But what we what we built was, you know, we studied things for weapons programs. I mean, I would write 
there's a very specific way that you write proposals for defense contracts, and the word warfighter appears a lot. And um, I, I kind of got tired of that. And over the past couple of years that I was there, I mostly worked on uh, biomedical uh, research and medical devices. And that, that felt better because that felt like actually stuff that could help people. Um, but it was, it was pretty hard to uh, know that, you know, the next day or the next week I could be working again or asked to write a proposal to, to build another weapon system. And I just didn't, I didn't feel like that was right anymore. You know, I don't begrudge anybody that does it. I don't necessarily think it's unethical to, um, work for the military. We don't live in a world where we can't be without a military, um, I would like that. I would like it if we were, but um, you know, I don't. I don't project any particular politics on on that decision. Other than, I wanted to look at, back at my career and say I did things that helped people. I did things that made people's lives better. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I I'm very close to somebody who currently works. Another scientist. Um, he currently works at a defense contractor, and he's. Mm -hmm. um, He's sort of experiencing a, a similar sort of uh, thinking right now, um, where he says that most people he works with, they, they sort of say to themselves, well, you know, this research would be taking, would take place whether it were for, were for weapons or not. So we're just going to, we're contributing to the research, but he's starting to sort of say to himself, is that good enough for me? You know, like, can I really live with that because I know I know what the end goal is with you know when I'm running these this analysis this you know when I'm doing what I'm doing what, what my part is it and so um I, I I I and he actually had a very similar um sort of political uh arc that you did as well so I'm I'm finding it interesting that it seems like there's similar patterns uh in people's lives that you know, that happen. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that, you know, my story is really unique in that regard at all. I've known several people to um, kind of burn out of the defense industry. Um, you know, they recruit engineers pretty hard out of college because um, it's easier, you know, college students that need a job have a little bit less, um, I guess, moral hesitation in, in doing that. They're a little bit, you know, uh, rosy cheeked about, oh, you know, I'm working on aviation safety. It's like, well, yeah, it's true. Like, it was an aviation safety program, but it was for the F-35. Like, mm -hmm. I was making the fighter jet more safe, hoping that someday somebody at Boeing would read my paper and say, I can use this on the, you know, whatever. And you actually I, did that, didn't you? You worked on the F-35. Right? I, I did. That was, I was um, very tangentially part of it. I mean, not really tangentially. I was part of the program um, through various contracting um, mechanisms. Um, yeah, I, I worked on the F-35. I had a very small part in um, trying to save the program money. Um, we weren't doing anything, you know, the vehicle was designed. It was mostly airworthiness certification um, saying, yes, we can, the vehicle can fly like it is in this state and here's why or here's why not um and you know i don't think that even if that work had never taken place at all i don't think it will make any difference in in the scheme of things but um 
Yeah, I like what I'm doing now uh, more than I like, you know, uh, saying, oh, I helped build that fighter jet that's going to be used one day to drop bombs on. <laughs> sure. You know, uh, which is funny because all my life I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And when I knew I couldn't be a fighter pilot, I wanted to build fighter planes. And I get to do it and I was like, wow, this sucks. <laughs> is that always the way? Um, you also have a, a, an ethics talk about the Internet of Things. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, that's that's an interesting talk. Um, it's mostly a series of case studies on ways that Internet of Things tech has failed and ways that it can fail. And by Internet of Things, I mean um, the embedding of the Internet into devices that don't normally have it. So we can think of like smartwatches, fitness trackers, um, Nest. refrigerators, nests, cars, self-driving cars, um, all sorts of technology. Sometimes it's a really great, great, awesome idea. Sometimes it's a really, really terrible idea um, to put the internet in some things. Um, but what we've seen is it's, it's still fairly early phase tech. Um, and there have been some really interesting failures of, um, of the technology and the ramifications of it are a lot deeper, I think, than what people um, realize. Uh, one of the examples I give in my talk is in 2015, I think it was, yeah, it was 2015, a woman in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, reported a rape uh, to the police. They came, they investigated, that she gave her statement. Um, they eventually found her Fitbit. And... They pulled, with her permission, they accessed the data on her Fitbit. Um, and they found that the data did not match with her story. And so not only did they drop the rape investigation, um, they actually prosecuted her for making false statements to the police. Oh, my God. And she pled guilty and was put on two years probation based on the data on her fitness tracker. Um, and that's, that's really interesting because it, it opens up a lot of questions of like, what, what does it mean when your devices bear witness against you? Um, what does it mean? Like, are these devices accurate enough? Who certifies their accuracy? Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it. I can send you the, the video before. Um, a couple of years ago, I did a video. I took a device very similar to a Fitbit. I mean, basically a Fitbit. It was, it was like, it was a Microsoft version of a Fitbit, but it was the same tech. Um, and I, I used it to read a heart rate off of a piece of raw chicken breast. Um, and, you know, so that's, that's really, it's really, uh, to me it's very upsetting that I can use one of these devices, I can get a, a, a positive heartbeat off of a piece of raw meat, and yet this woman's life has been ruined based on the data on her device. Um, and that there's there's no um, structure in law um, currently. There's no legal theory for for handling any of this. It's all ad hoc. Um, and you know, Lancaster, Pennsylvania is a, it's like Amish country. Like she's not she was from out of state. She's traveling. Like she just probably wants to make this go away. But you know. So who, what small town lawyer is going to go up against a company like Fitbit? You know, there's all sorts of uh, questions um, 
that come up that need to be answered. And it's not just about, hey, I'm a good software engineer. I can put software on this refrigerator and do cool things. It's There are actual real-world ramifications for when things fail, when they um, when even when they don't fail, even when they're working as normal, like this technology can can do harm to people. I mean that that is a horrifying story. Let me ask you this: Would you have uh, Amazon Alexa in your house? I don't have one. I do have a, a Microsoft Xbox um, with the voice activation, um, though it's it hasn't been functioning in a while. Um, yeah, it's that's a dicey a dicey thing. Like. I would love a world where that convenience is available for everyone, especially for um, people with disabilities. Something like Alexa is a godsend um, because they they can just use their voice to control it. Um, and so I really want that technology to survive. I really want it to thrive. Um, and you know, part of what I talk about when I give the ethics talk is it's not about like don't just like, this isn't a, a talk to say, you know, bad things can happen, therefore don't do tech. It's bad things can happen, therefore building these features for transparency, for privacy, for security, for accountability into your system so that people have trust that this device is not recording data, it's not transmitting data, um, it's not retaining it, that the police can, can search it that it can't be used, it's not listening to your conversations, uh, and then it's going to, you know, hear you talking to somebody and then recommend ads based on what your conversation was that, you know, could could be very uncanny or, or dangerous. Um, and so that's really the, the kind of the thesis of what I talk about. It's, it's just as important to design accountability into these systems as it is to design good algorithms. Mm. Yeah, I mean... All I'm saying is I wouldn't have a, an Alexa in my house. <laughs> just... Not not now. I think I probably wouldn't, but someday I'd like to have something like that. I think it would be cool. It's, it's like we're living in the future. That would be great. But Yeah, I mean, I see the utility, but I, I think I know way too much about, um, you know, how much they eavesdrop. I mean, I, I already know my phone eavesdrops on me, and I don't like it. But, I you know, I'm not going to not have a phone, but, you know, I, but, you know, I already know that those microphones are listening and... I don't like it. Um, okay, so you've written in a fascinating way about the Trump dialect, and in a way, the, and how he allows his his I was going to say users, but yeah, let's call them users. He allows his users to sort of fill in the blanks in in, in his like essentially nonsense. Um, and we'll finish up after this because I know I'm like taking up so much of your time. But, no, it's fine. This is great. Uh, you're so great. I mean, you're so fascinating. But um, could you just like fill us in on on what you're calling like the Trump dialect? Yeah, I don't know, like, that was a funny thread. I think a lot of my threads that, that end up going, like, viral, I, I just kind of, like, wake up and have this thought. Like, I think I started that thread at, like, 6.50 in the morning or something like that. Um, I've been trying to think of, like, what it is about the way that he speaks, um, because it, it makes no sense. It's nonsense. If you read the transcript, you're like, what is happening? This man is our president. What? Yeah. How do people vote for him? Um, but then I thought about some people that I've known in my past through you know, either coworkers or bosses or, or people that I've interacted with, <clears throat> excuse me, that talk in a very similar way. Um, 
And I think, you know, it's, it's very compelling because we live in a time where um, it's very difficult to interrogate people on their opinions and on their views and get them to change. Um, and I think that he's, he's speaking to what people want to hear. And I think that there's more diversity in what people believe, um, even among the right. I think there's a lot of diversity in what people believe, um, but it kind of gets shoved into this monoculture. And I think that he amplifies that by talking about, by not committing to certain statements or not committing to um, certain viewpoints, but by starting the, the, the thought the way that you would hear somebody start the thought at a bar or at a, you know, a golf course or something like that. And then letting the user fill in or letting the listener fill in what they already believe. So they, he plants that seed, you know, you look at what happened in Sweden last night, he said, and you know, that there's already a seed there. Like people already have beliefs about Sweden. You know, um, they want to, lots of people think like, Oh, I want to take down Sweden because socialists, you know, use it as an example of their perfect socialist utopia. Therefore, Sweden is bad. Some people hear that statement and they think, oh, Sweden took in refugees. Um, therefore, you know, this is a refugee issue that he's talking about. So there's lots of, like, preconceived notions that are there. Um, and he just, he, he pokes at all of them with this sort of rambling, nonsensical sentence and then when he does things like he shifts into this um, sort of nonsense filler vernacular, um, you know, the, oh, I have the best words or they're terrific people. You know, he, he, he'll do that. Like he'll start a thought and then switch into that. And it's just one of those, like the timing of it, it just kind of reinforces whatever that person has already thought, like whatever the, the, their brain has jumped to. That's just like icing on the cake, I think. Um, you know, I, if I were a linguist, I'd probably have like words for specifically what he what he's doing. But the more I watch his speeches, the more I read his transcripts, and the more I like think about the people I know that are Trump supporters, it's like this is this is how they communicate. It's a social contract, um, and he's he's just like really really effective at at pulling at those strings. I think this is a truly brilliant observation and now that you've made it I, i'm like of course he he's basically just providing the foil for a range of different you know mostly right supporters although some kind of like centrist people as well to just kind of like project what they want or need to to like kind of fill in onto him i mean this that's exactly what he's doing because nothing he says makes sense to us it's it's, it's rambling and it's nonsensical and there's all sentence fragments but it, it's all just like spaces it's it's like a setup then a space and a setup and a space but you know they're yes. assuming that he, he's making sense yeah and it's it's interesting because um he he does this from a position of power even not even before he was the president he was a you know a ceo he was a wealthy billionaire he, he's been I, i've known who he who he was for my whole life. His name is synonymous with very rich, very powerful. Um, and so when he does branding. this, some people are like, this guy's a genius. Mm -hmm. And other people are like, this guy's an idiot. And it's, it's very interesting because it's like there are two simultaneous contradictory truths. 
coming out of the same exact input. And to me, that's fascinating. It, it, it's fascinating how much he's he sort of leveraged a, a brand out of nothing because you know underneath it all it's it's been all like bad debts and money laundering schemes and you know but, but he he sort of like you know he's leveraged 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 and you know and, and somehow you know trumped up this grand illusion out of, out of it all. It's, I mean, it's truly an American story, you know. He, he's like the two bit like. Carney, yeah, con artist. I mean, he's in real estate, and when you think about it, like you know, a real estate agent sells you a house or an apartment or something. They they don't want to sell you what it is. They want to sell you your vision of it. Um, And I think it's a lot of that is very true. Just like at a totally different scale for him. Um, He doesn't sell you know the building. He sells what the building could be. He sells what the country could be um, in the mind of the person that's already formed that image. You just hit the nail on the head. That is exactly what's going on here. He, he's like the, you know, the, the cheesy, like, real estate agent who walks in and he's like, oh, can't you see your sofa? And like, oh, didn't you say you wanted to have a baby? Can't you see a crib in there? <laughs> it's like, you can just feel yourself being manipulated and con, you know. I mean, I, I still remember when I was, like, a child, like, uh, I guess we were, like, buying a, a condo or something to move into. And, and I still remember this woman being like, Oh, I'm gonna come over and bl- bring my float for the pool. <laughs> I don't like the real estate agent. <laughs> um, okay, so last question. This is this is what I ask myself before I meditate every day. What do I need to know? Could be about anything. Oh, geez. Um, I would say. I say that the big thing to that to need to know is that we're going to win. It's going to be fine, but it's going to be hard and not everyone's going to get through it. And that to me is the thing that I try to focus on. Um, you know, as a, I think as a country we will survive as a, as people we will survive. Um, there's going to be a cost to getting to that point. Um, but if we can focus on that and keep that sort of centered in whatever we do, that I think we can minimize um, to the to the greatest extent possible the, the negative consequences of um, having to go through this period of our history. Do, do you? And that's a fantastic answer, and thank you for that. Um, do you think our our institutions are going to survive this? Because I'm I'm a little bit worried. I have to I have to admit. I don't think all of them are going to. Um, I think it's going to be very different when we come out of this, what our country, our government is going to look like. Um, But I think that what we were building in the years before this all happened, um, I think that what we were building is still too great to not ever build it again. And... I think we'll get back to that point. I think we'll get back to that. And um, it may look different. It may look like a different government. It may look like a different um, system, you know, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing um, or a good thing. It just depends on how it all pans out. Wow. Thank you so much for this. I mean, this has been an incredible interview. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you, Emily Gorsensky. Yeah, no problem. I had fun. Thank you. Um, really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Anytime. I'm happy to chat for anything. And Well, I, I may hit you up again, like, as, as the stuff heats up. <laughs> I, I hope you don't mind. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Now you're my go-to data scientist and whatnot. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll hopefully have some... I'll hopefully be able to pivot back to doing data science and not just complaining about politics sometime. Oh, God. Me too. Um, okay, thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Bye. All right, have a good night. Thank you so much to Emily Gorsensky. That interview was incredible. If you want, you can support the show on patreon.com slash threatsurface. There you will see our top secret videos where we discuss, uh, you know, conspiracies. I'm not going to say against two. Uh, don't want any, like, marshals coming and knocking on the door. Just, you know, you, you, you can throw, you can kick in $5 a month to the kitty and, and, and see just what we're up to over in the Patreon. Um, our producers are at Sleepy Geeky and at Kendama Jendale. Uh, we're... Threat Surface everywhere on social, on all the major social platforms that you've heard of. I'm Julie underscore Bush on Twitter. Uh, Bush Julie on Snap. Julie Bush on Instagram. And um, let's talk about Amazon. Amazon is a behemoth, uh, an aggregator, if you will. Uh, the type of company that aggregates uh, suppliers and demand, demandees like you, all into one easy to use platform. You can access on your device that you're watching this on right now. Um, if you access our Amazon portal uh, through our site at threatsurface.org, um, you can support the show by uh, doing all of your Amazon shopping through the portal and it won't cost you a dime because they give us a percentage of everything that you uh, that you buy and doesn't cost you anything. As an aggregator, Amazon basically aggregates all of your desires, all of your all of your uh, preferences uh, into data points, collecting a vast personality profile of you so that even though it seems like you are the consumer, in fact, uh, the corporate machine is the consumer of your data profile, uh, and you are the one who is in fact being consumed. So as you click through our Amazon portal on our site, threatsurface.org, to help contribute to the show, uh, please enjoy the notion of you yourself being consumed as a series of data points and uh, never forget that need not consume lest ye be consumed. Oh, you data point portrait. That was a little convoluted. Sorry, it's late and I've been I've been toiling away in the screenwriting minds. Uh, sorry if that made even less sense than my normal 
uh, on the ball Amazon ads. Um, I think it's time to call this, th this thing a wrap. Red Surface out. Good night.